0: Hey everybody, welcome back to What Happened to You. Today, I'm joined by Jody Plaché, a child abuse survivor who was named the Activist of the Year by the Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency. Jody is is the author of Why Gary Why, a book detailing the experience that he will be sharing with us today. He's made appearances on Oprah, ESPN, CNN, and many more outlets, speaking about his experience and how he's helping prevent these things from happening in the future. Can't thank you enough for being on here. And um, without further ado, what happened to you, Jody?
1: Ah, wow. when I was in fifth grade, I, I remember it like yesterday. I got a flyer from the school, and it said, you know, take karate. Well, I was already playing baseball, football, soccer, and basketball, and I took that piece of paper, and I just crumbled it up. Okay, But my little brother, he went to a school in the same school district, and they handed out theirs to him as well. So he brought the flyer home. And my mother decided that they, because my little brother didn't have any extracurricular activities. She decided she was going to sign us up for karate. Mm-hmm. We went to a couple karate meetings and then that karate teacher, he kind of just never showed back up. So our name, our names were handed over to a, a young up karate martial artist named Jeff Dusett, And we started karate from Jeff Duset. unbeknownst to my family or my parents, Jeff Dusett was a child molester. He was a pedophile and eventually he worked and gained a trust into the family and you know i mean he would bring his home body practice he would you know stay over for dinner and in all the meantime roomed not just me but like everyone thinks he's such a great guy but all in all he's behind their back going in the back room when i'm laying back there and touching me and you know eventually it got to the point we were on a trip uh in Houston in april of uh, 1983 we're just riding in a van and he whispers in my ear he's like i'm going to suck your dick tonight <laughs> like why would you want to do that? Whoa. So, so from April to May, he won't roll sex on me. And that was pretty much the day till he kidnapped February of 1984. So that's gotcha. That's kind of what happened to me.
0: Yeah, it's an overview for sure. I wanted to ask you uh, about like the initial phases of the molestation because it's one of the big misconceptions around this topic is that people think that it just starts out of nowhere and it's very rarely is that the case. Oftentimes there's a whole grooming period where people are getting integrated with the family of the victim and making themselves just like almost part of the family and somebody that the victim really wants to to be around. How did the initial molestation start with is your karate teacher
1: the earliest that i can remember as far as him grooming me would have be during karate practice actually in front of the parents i mean it wasn't like a a big secret he would have a stretch and in order to be able to kick you have to be real flexible so he'd make us do like a split and he would get behind us and he would like hold our legs and so now he's got his you know hands between both of my legs where you know You're stretching on a split. And I think that was kind of like the introduction to him being able to touch us without raising any flags. And then the other one that I really distinctly remember was we were driving. I was driving in a car. He had me in his lap. And he was letting me drive the car and he started putting his hands in my lap, but it was subtle. Like it would, it was like just right there on my crotch. And I'm like, Oh, does he know where his hands are? And then he'd right. move it just a little bit. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I guess his hands would normally be on the steering wheel, but now he's got to put them somewhere and he doesn't realize that they're right directly on my dick. And, yeah. but he, he knew exactly what he was doing. Um, but yeah. that, that, that was the gradual process. And then, you know, probably after two or three months, we were going crawfishing, and we all got a ho- we got a hotel room that night, and we stayed in a hotel. And that night, he put me on. He slept. There were like four kids in the three kids in the bed and him and he had two kids to his right and I was on the outside so he was able to turn himself to where the other kids were shielded and he just sat there and he rubbed me all night long and it fucking yo this is exactly
0: what happened to me man one of the times I was in the bed with my with my friend and the guy who molested me it was my friend's dad he got into bed with us and, and did the exact same thing you know turned over to the side and it seems like such an absurd thing for people who haven't been through this to hear that this could be going on while all of these other kids are in in the room but yeah man that's that's wild so you were in a bed with with your karate teacher and two other kids yes right did you ever talk with any of the other kids about any of this stuff
1: the only one I ever talked to about it was the other one that I know he was molested. Cause one night Jeff wanted me to perform oral sex on him. And I told him, no, he said, well, if you don't do it, I'll make the other kid do it. And I'm like, well, I can let him do it. <laughs> and he woke the other kid up and the kid just went on down and did what he had to do. And, and that kid was a little older than me, like a year older than me. And so he was aging out. And so he was kind of jealous of me cause he knew exactly what Jeff was doing to me. And he kind of felt, it's really fucked up but i mean he he was jealous of me and jeff's relationship because he wasn't the favorite anymore and so right. he was more than happy to go please jeff i was like fuck that
0: yeah yeah it's similar to the guys who were abused by michael jackson where they felt as they got older and, and michael jackson was going and focusing on these younger kids they felt jealous um and you know it's not rational thinking it, it, at that age you know you you're thrown into this hypersexual environment so early and it's like it's not you're just not thinking logically but at the time i mean it's it's totally understandable for kids to feel that way but it, it is wild to me that that was going on and he was having like negotiating with you about what you know hey if you're not going to do this I'll uh, almost trying to make you feel bad
1: for I was not doing like, it oh, i was like let him <laughs> let him <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, and you asked if me and the other kid had talked. And so there was another time where I forget whether he – no, it had to be me. So he was having sex with me in the bathroom. Other kids in the hotel room, uh, this other kid was in the bathroom with us. And when he finished, he left, me and the other kid in the bathroom. And the other kid looked at me while I was, you know, sitting on the toilet. And he was like, uh, it hurts, don't it? And that's pretty much the extent of our discussion. Wow. Was like, You know, he was like, it hurts, don't it? And I'm like, Yeah. But that's pretty much, yeah, that's pretty much all we talked about it.
0: So that was, that was all before any of, any. you went to California, any, anything like that? Yes, that happened, was before right? the kidnapping. Yeah, that was before okay. the kidnapping.
1: Okay, so. That was a year leading up to the kidnapping.
0: Got it. And, and it's, it's just funny that, like, because, <laughs> you know, obviously he was your karate instructor, so he's doing karate-related things. But the guy who molested me would always wrestle with us. Uh, Like, but we have video of him wrestling with me and, and my friend, you know, from when we were eight or so. And it's so gross to watch in retrospect, knowing what was going on. But at the time, I mean, it seems like innocent behavior. And these are just the type of things that parents and kids need to be aware of that, like, regardless of why, what the person's uh, title is, whether it's a karate teacher or just a friend, you shouldn't be touching any kids in that physical way in that sort of intimate way for any reason, really, there's no, there's no reason to be doing it. Um, When it's somebody uh, that you trust, it feels like they're they're just able to get away with it so much easier.
1: I think wrestlers and ticklers are creepy motherfuckers to be honest with you. So if (laughs) if you got someone who's wrestling or tickling a kid, I'm sorry, to me, you're testing their boundary and you're waiting to see if they say anything. So if I had kids, which I don't, I would not allow anyone to wrestle or tickle my children.
0: So all of that is going on for, you said, uh, about a year?
1: Yeah, he started, like, I would say probably February of 83, rubbing, you know, me, touching me, like I said, in April of 83 is when he performed oral sex on me for the first time. And then at the end of May, he started having sex with me. And then from May to when he kidnapped me, it was pretty much every day.
0: Gotcha. So what was your thought process like? He was
1: a horny fucker. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, no kidding. I've talked with a wide range of people from people that were really hating the experience to people that were enjoying the experience. It's very different for every person. While this stuff is going on, like what's going on in your head? Is this something that you're really wanting to like get out of or or is this something that you're kind of okay with?
1: No, 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 no. I I did not enjoy what was happening. Now, my body uh, when he was performing all sex on me would tell you a different story because physically, you know, I was able to achieve an orgasm. Like, I didn't know why he wanted to suck my dick to begin with, but then I came and I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> wow. Yep. That, that kind of felt good. Yeah. But it wasn't, it wasn't something I was enjoying. Okay. Cause mentally I was like, this fucking dude's nuts. And, but physically my body was like, Ooh. And I think that's why a lot of survivors, especially like, uh, young girls, at some point the body is going to respond like a human body and it's going to actually feel good. And so of now when he was doing, having sex with me, the anal stuff, it like, like the other kids said, it hurts. So I was not enjoying that. Um, it was disgusting right. to, to me, but, uh, no, I was just wanting out. I just, I wish I could just could, Jeff would just leave me alone and, and go away. Right. Um, and eventually that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs>
0: No kidding. Yeah, it's it's, um, arousal does not mean consent or uh, even enjoyment. I mean, our bodies respond in these ways naturally, uh, regardless of who it is that's doing it. And I I remember because I would get boners. The extent of my molestation never went past this guy grabbing my dick, you know, just touching my dick when I was sleeping. But even then, I would get boners while it was going on. And I remember thinking to myself, like, stop stop it like i remember being mad at myself for getting hard while this was happening because i was like i don't want this guy to think that i'm into this you know i'm sending the wrong message so it was this really frustrating experience but um so he
1: never he never performed oral sex on you
0: no he never did and he never did made me do anything to him either it was it was a much like we never had um conversations about like the abuse that had been going on you know he never like told me oh i'm gonna molest you tonight or or, or anything like that it was a very under wraps operation covert operation that this guy was pulling off
1: is he still alive
0: yeah yeah he is did Um, he ever get in trouble Uh, we went to court and he didn't get convicted. So I told my parents, yeah, I told my parents when I was 10 and we went to court and, um, yeah, it was a hung jury. So six, six jurors said that he did it. Six said that he didn't do it, but, uh, yeah. And I have a whole bunch of things that I want to talk about with that, um, that overlap with your story too. Okay. So just before we get into that, can you talk about what the experience was like leading up to the kidnapping and then when that started actually happening?
1: Okay. So leading up to the kidnapping was the closest that I came to ever tell him because he did tell me he needed some money. Uh, he owed uh, a guy some money. He had kind of like embezzled it, I guess would be the proper word. Mm -hmm. And the guy was wanting his money back. It was like $15,000. And Jeff said, if I can't get a loan from somebody, I'm going to leave. And when I leave, I'm going to take you and we're going to go to California. And so I knew when he was meeting with the guy and I knew it was, you know, Jeff was planning this and, uh, the day it actually happened, I didn't know that was the day it was going to be. His brother dropped him off at the house. He asked to borrow my mother's car and said, hey, Jody, come ride with me. And my mother, you know, specifically said, Jeff, don't keep him all day. You know, he's got school tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. Well, when we got into the car, then we went to Mike's house and picked up like a sleeping bag and some clothes. And we drove my mother's car from Gonzales, Louisiana, to Port Arthur, Texas, to his mom's house. And so we stayed with his mom. That was a Sunday, Sunday and Monday. And then Tuesday, we called a bus out of Orange, Texas to Los Angeles, California. On that same Tuesday, my mother, uh, Mike Barnett, the police officer, her brother who worked for the sheriff's department and a couple other deputies, they drove to Port Arthur to go look for me. But as they were driving to get me, we were pulling off heading to California.
0: And at what point did you realize that this what was going on in your head at that at that time?
1: Nothing. I mean, it was just like I, I was almost helpless. You know, yeah. you had this helplessness of being a kid who's being molested and you got this older person who's in control of you. And you know, what was I going to tell him? Like, no.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it's an impossible situation to be in. You are completely helpless. And I, I'm just curious, like, did you know uh, what was going on?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I knew, okay. needed, I knew he needed, I knew he owed money. I knew who his plan was to go to California. He didn't have much of a, a plan cause he didn't have any money. Um, he had to borrow the money for the bus tickets. And if, uh, You know, I I sent you the copy of the digital copy of the book uh, Mm -hmm. yesterday, but I mean, there's a part in it where he actually bought a karate magazine and he looked up this guy that we had fought at his tournament in Houston. And he called that guy and said, look, I I bought a group of kids out to California. My van got stolen. Can you wire some money so we can get get home? And it got wired him. uh, He ended with five hundred fifty dollars. I think he wired him six hundred You. Western Union got 50 of it and so Jeff had $550. That's all we had for the trip. And the first night, the night he got the $550, the dope went and stayed at the, the Hilton downtown Los Angeles at the time was like $85, which if you were limited on funds, you can stay at the budget six and you don't go stay at the Hilton group, you know, yeah, Hilton, you know. Right. but uh, so the next day we took a bus, I want to say we went to Canoga Park um, cause he was kind of looking for an apartment or maybe where he could get a job. Then we took a bus to Anaheim, and we went to Disneyland. I went to Disneyland while I was kidnapped. Um, <laughs> and we, we were right. standing, like, around the corner from Disneyland, and that's where eventually a couple of days later um, they traced the call back to that hotel room, and the FBI and police came busting in, and they arrested him, and then I never saw him again after that.
0: So this is not a typical stereotypical kidnapping experience. I think you've described it as, you know, gagged and and tied up. And, you know, you weren't uh, forced in that regard to go to California. Um, But again, you're a kid. You have no way to consent to these things or any idea what's going on or how to get out of it. But it's just interesting that you know you talk about we were talking about the environments that the that molesters create for children. You know, he wants you to be having a good time and and to be enjoying yourself and not want to leave, right? right. And. So it's like, you talk about Disneyland. It's funny because I went on a camping trip uh, with the family and the guy who was molesting me and his son and his wife. And um, so, you know, we would go, we we went camping and then there was like an amusement park that we went to. So we were going on roller coasters during the day. And then at night, you know, we were in the, in their camper and it was set up so that him and his wife were sleeping on one end of the camper. And then there was another bed on the other end of the camper with me and his son. And so he would just get up in the middle of the night with his whole family in the camper and just, you know, cruise on over to my side of the camper and, and molest me. It doesn't seem to be this like super absurd thing that's going on. It's just like, yeah, I'm going to go on the roller coaster. That's a fun experience. And then I have to put up the, this thing that I don't really enjoy. But it's like you think about the environments that they create for the kids. It's premeditated, you know, like they they, they these are planned out things. It's not um, just spontaneous uh, molestation that's happening. It's oftentimes well thought out things that they're doing.
1: One of the lines in my book is that if, if someone wants to spend more time with your child than you do that's definitely a red flag so you yeah. know they you know i've got my my nieces and nephew they live across the street uh i got other ones and i've never offered hey you want me to uh bring charles to soccer practice i'm, I'm not offering that because i'm not trying to be spend time alone with charles now right. my brother said hey can you do me a favor and go pick charles up from soccer practice you know i'm running late for work i've done that but i'm not trying to create a situation where i'm trying to be alone with my nieces and nephews In order for the molestation to happen, the molester has to be alone with the child or I guess, you know, at least be able to shield the other person in the bed away from the child. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But specifically, if you're on a camping trip, that's what I'm talking about. You're with this guy on a camping trip. You're spending time with them and, you know, he's going to find the time to be with you.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's something to be aware of as a parent who is interested in your kids, like really any amount of interest is a little bit weird, but like w- when you're really wanting the kid to do things like um, uh, w- w- wanting, wanting to spend time with the kid. Like I remember I was on vacation with my family and I had emailed my friend, we were playing RuneScape, which was like a, just an online computer game back in the day. Um, and I was emailing him about that. And his dad was responding to the emails and i was like trying to get in touch with with my friend but his dad was just replying on his behalf and, you know, I didn't show that to my parents at the time, uh, obviously, I wasn't really thinking about it. But that's a perfect example of like, you know, they're trying to spend time with you, they're trying to develop a relationship with you and, and get integrated into your life. So that it it's somebody that you want to spend time with. And it's just, you know, going back to the Disneyland trip, it's just funny how like, despite being molested, you know, during the day is pretty, pretty chill experience, probably. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep, no, I mean, it, it, you know, he seems like a great guy, fun, fun guy. We, you know, we go to the mall, we go to the movies. Um, I'll tell you something. I left this out of the book and I shouldn't have. I, I don't know why I did, but uh, I found it very ironic, so to say, if you're familiar with the Clint Eastwood movie, uh, Sudden Impact. Me and Jeff went and saw that at the movie theater three times. And that movie is about a sister getting revenge on the people who group raped uh, her sister and her at a party. And Clinice was trying to investigate these murders. And so basically, it's a, a sexual assault revenge killing, which is exa- exactly pretty much what happened to Jeff. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I wonder why he took it to you three times. That's, uh... Uh, he,
1: he didn't know what his future had in store for him. I can guarantee you that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you're in California, you're in LA, this is all going on. And you were there for how many days before the cops traced the call? Oh.
1: He took me February 19th and I was returned home March 1st. So he was arrested February 29th, which is, it was a leap year. Uh, 84 was a leap year. And so like his mugshot has February 29th on there, which I think is kind of interesting because, you know, that what day happens every four years. But uh, yeah, so I was trippy. going from the 19th the 19th till the 1st of March.
0: Gotcha. And aside from Disneyland, what was that experience like? Was he molesting you that it, whole time?
1: Well, I think in the book, I say it was better when I was kidnapped because it wasn't happening as much. Like he was preoccupied with how am I gonna get money? Am I going to get a job what's you know, I I gotta stay away from the law. Um, So he was preoccupied with that. One day he left and he went to Fullerton, I believe it was. And I was in the hotel room all day by myself. You know, I never called the cops. I never tried to run away. Um, Another day we went to the Fullerton mall. He took me to the Fullerton mall. Um, They had a jacuzzi and a swimming pool at the hotel we were at. And even though it was February, it was still California, so it wasn't real cold. So I was able to go play in the, the hot tub and go in the pool a little bit. So I actually – I, I love the travel. I actually enjoyed the trip, to be honest with you. I, yeah. I mean, uh, to see the Hollywood side, I got chills. I remember just looking, wow, at look, the Hollywood side. Because you see this on, on TVs and the movies. But to actually see it in person for the first time, it was just – it was – all inspiring. So I mean, I you know, I enjoyed my little trip to California.
0: Yeah, that's so funny. I can literally see the Hollywood sign right now. Hey, really? <laughs> Living in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, you were in California and they figured out where Jeff was, where you guys were because of a call that, that had been traced, right? What yeah. was the experience like when when the when the police came?
1: Whew! Uh that was not fun. I was sitting closest to the door in the in the motel room, okay? Jeff was on the other side of the bed next to the wall, you know, across from the door. And when they came busting in, they were putting guns in my face, guns on him. I mean, it seemed like 50 cops came busting in. And then they grabbed me and a cop walked around the bed and he said, I'll punch you in the goddamn mouth, is what he told Jeff. And then they took me out and I was sitting by the pool and I remember just shaking and shivering because I was scared. And they were like, "Um, are you cold? I'm like, no, I'm not cold. I said, I'm scared. They said, well, there's no reason for you to be scared. I said, well, I'm not scared now. I'm scared because a minute ago y'all had guns in my face yeah and so they they ended up taking me to the uh i want to say the anaheim police department where they questioned me you know where'd y'all sleep did he ever touch you i lied a lot a lot um then they took me to the hospital where they did a rape kit a rape kit uh on me when i tell people a complete physical examination you know along with cotton swabs up the butt and you know right the, uh so i knew one day that 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 the hospital report would come back, proven that Jeff had molested me, but I would convinced myself or I made a pact with myself that I wasn't going to tell on Jeff. I was going to let the hospital report tell on Jeff. That way Jeff could never say I told on him, you know, because I was under yeah. the mindset that Jeff would, you know, he'd get probation or get out of jail or, and, and would come back to, to, to get me. So right. I could always say, Jeff, you got yourself caught. So I, I lied up until the moment my mother told me the hospital report came back positive. Then I told him that the truth
0: that's so interesting and so you made up that decision in just like in the moment as soon as the cops came and just started questioning you you were like okay well i know that this is going to get found out so i might as well protect myself from when he eventually would get out of jail and he would be able to be mad at you because Absolutely. you you in a way protected him you tried to protect him right. And it's so interesting to have all of that running through your head in, in just in the, in that moment and to be thinking so far down the line. And, and because, <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't have at that age, like rational time frames that we're working with. Right. But, but all, everything that you thought of was reasonable to think, I think, and and it's like, you know, when I was on the stand, uh, in trial, when the guy originally started molesting me, he would poke me, uh, at, at night to wake me up when we were waking up in the mornings. And he eventually he called it the wiggle game and he would wiggle my dick to wake me up. And I had told a friend of mine that, uh, just, and I made him swear not to tell anybody. Um, and then I had completely forgotten about it until I was on the stand testifying. And the defense attorney asked me, does the wiggle game mean anything to you? And I had blocked out that entire, basically the first year of the grooming molestation, all of that stuff. And I had only talked about the actual molestation that was happening. So he brought up this wiggle game and all of these memories rushed back to me. The fact that I had told my friend about it, you know, that this, all these other, other experiences that I hadn't thought about. And in that moment, I lied. I was like, no, the wiggle game doesn't mean anything to me. Because I thought that that would, if I had said yes, that would make it look like my story was all fucked up and I wasn't trying, I wasn't telling it cohesively or whatever. But in that moment, I just made a decision. And just like fucking went for it. Just despite having this like mental absurd flashbacks happening on the stand, you know, while I'm testifying. But it's just interesting how we make these split second decisions that are kind of rational at the time, albeit, you know, in insane states of mind, whether it's having a cop point a gun at your face and, and having all of that going on. It's uh it's just funny the overlap between these experiences. So that happened, and then you flew back to uh, well, New Orleans. Right. Yeah. And, and what was that experience like you, you getting off the flight and, and, and also flying on your own for the first time?
1: I was the first time flying. I was all excited. I, I got a window seat and we take off. And when they do, they turn and I'm facing the Pacific ocean. I can't see shit. I'm looking at the other side of the plane. I can see everything all lit up over there and I'm looking at black. So eventually I fell asleep on the flight home. They woke me up as we were descending into New Orleans. I walk off the plane with my black hair. My hair had been dyed black and I see a camera crew. There's a there's a guy with a camera, and there's a reporter, and I see my parents, and I was pissed off. I mean, you don't – they didn't know what had happened to me, but, I mean, they should have kind of suspected and, and kind of laid low. And so you can literally – if you watch the video from the ESPN E60, you can literally see my mother hug me, and she leans over, and she says, smile. And I go <laughs> – and I cracked this smile. And then the reporter's like, you know, what do you think about all this? So I'm like, I oh, don't know. I mean, like, how would you put a camera in a kid's face who you know has just been kid- – you know, they would never do that now. Of course. Uh, I got a – I didn't hold a grudge. I mean, I got over it pretty quickly. And then my mother's concern was getting my hair back to normal color. So we tried <laughs> to dye it from black to blonde again, and it turned looking like a, a type of bad Rod Stewart experiment. I'm thinking of <laughs> –
0: that whole experience happened. You get into the airport and you're immediately getting questioned, even though nobody knows yet that you had been raped, the, the rape kit
1: hadn't come back yet. Right. There was a suspicion because once I was kidnapped, that's when my little brother was like, well, one time I saw Jody and Jeff wrestle on the bed and Jeff went over to the sink and Jody ran into the bathroom. And, and my mother's like, I don't want to hear this. She's like, let me worry about getting my son back. And when I get my son back, then I can worry about other stuff. Um, and then gotcha. w- when my mother went to Port Arthur looking for me, I think his sister was like, well, I you know, Jeff molested a kid when he was 17 and, and, uh, the mother knew like someone and got him out of it. But I mean, there was other instances where Jeff had molested other kids that other people known about that we didn't know until he had kidnapped me. So, you know, they, they suspected it was probably a high probability, you know, and it was confirmed whenever the hospital report came back. And that was like, that was a week before the shooting. So I was home a week. And then we got the hospital report back and then a week later on March 16th. So I came back March 1st, Jeff came back from California, March 16th. And then that's the night the shooting occurred. For those uh, who don't know, my father went to the airport. uh, He was told by someone at the local news station that Jeff was going to be arriving that night. And he went to the airport, got on the payphone was actually talking to his best friend, told his best friend, here they come. You're going to hear the shot. Turned around and shot him one time in the ear and Fatally wounding him, and Jeff officially died the next day. But he he was dead before he hit the floor.
0: Right, that's so wild. So your your whole family found out about the actual rape before that had happened. You were coming back. You got into the airport, and all these news reporters were just, from their perspective, were like, "Oh, this kid just survived a kidnapping."
1: Right. It was Um, just one. My dad had worked at that news station before, so he knew the people. He used to go to this uh, restaurant called the Cotton Club, which is about a quarter of a mile up from the news station. So a lot of the guys from the news station. They knew my dad. My dad was on their bowling team, so I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a big request for my dad to ask the reporter to go to New Orleans to welcome me back because he knew everybody at the police station. I mean, at the news station.
0: So he he did it as in with the intention of trying to make you feel good. He was trying to make you feel like, oh, it's like a welcome back party type thing. I,
1: I think that that's what he was thinking. And, and if you watch the, 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 some of the footage from that day, um, they did a good job. I mean, they they did they showed my brother looking out the window. They filmed us walking down the. Corridor at the airport is one happy family being together. And I totally look like such an abused kid. My hands are in my pocket. And I'm like walking like this.
0: Um, I saw that um, I saw that video. And and when the reporter questioned you uh, about like, what, so what do you think about all this? And it's like, what do you, the kidnapping? What do you, what am I supposed to say to this? What an impossible, and I honestly, you know, it's, it's interesting because I got like a little bit emotional just looking at you at that age and i mean you're just so young and and like you just said like yeah you i mean you look victimized and i just i just empathize with like your mannerisms and the way that you were interacting it's it's like feeling like you had to put on a face being told to smile you know it, even though nobody knew just yet what had happened to you and, i mean obviously they knew you'd been kidnapped but all of the additional stuff um it just it made me sort of feel like similar feelings about being in that state of mind where you're just like sort of putting on a face pretending like nothing had happened when did the rape kit when did when did
1: everything come out confirmed? it was it was a week later so uh, if the 16th it was a friday um actually i i, I want to say it was my sister's birthday if my best guess i think it was march 9th they mike barnett told my mother and father my dad said he's a dead motherfucker you know and that's a normal reaction for a parent sure and uh, my mother was concerned like that daddy was going to shoot him and mike barnett told my mother she said uh, june i've been protecting prisoners way before gary decided to become a hitman um, so you ain't got to <laughs> worry about nothing and unbeknownst to mike he would be the first police officer to lose a prisoner in custody since lee harvey oswald
0: wow that's crazy at least in the video and obviously he was just happy to see you right but the level of anger obviously escalated immensely once he found out about the rape kit once that absolutely
1: absolutely so the footage that you saw when i was returned they didn't know right okay so it would have been a little over a week after that that they found out and i want to say the day of the shooting or whatever i told my mother like whenever she had sat me down and told me that the report came back positive i I I told the truth, and you know I, I told her little details and stuff like that. I told her not to tell Daddy, and of course she did. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that he was obsessed with is if Jeff made me suck his dick. Like somehow that was make it worse. And uh, only on like three occasions did he uh, basically force me to perform oral sex on him. Uh, once I threw up. Um, after I threw up, he quit making me do that. But. Uh, mm-hmm so that for whatever reason my dad was obsessed with that and i guess you know back then that there was that belief that oh this might turn me gay or something like that Mm um i even address it in the book and and the old seinfeld line you know not that there's anything wrong with it yeah um but uh so i think that that just that wore on him and and he went to the airport to die that night and he got lucky that he didn't and then the eventual results of what happened he got really lucky cuz for those who don't know he was eventually sentenced to he pled no contest to manslaughter he received uh i want to say like 7 years suspended sentence 300 hours community service and probation 5 years probation basically what people get for DWI's now
0: yeah for yeah. <laughs> yeah that's and i i want to ask you more about that just before we do what was that moment like when you first when everything came out about the rape kit when you were talking to your mom about it and you told her not to tell your dad because that was literally the exact same thing that happened with me
1: it was like a big zit being popped you ever had like a big zit on your back <laughs> and you finally get it and just feel so good that's what it felt like i just feel good like okay i didn't have to fucking lie anymore yeah and, and and even to this day um i was with a friend of mine and, and they asked me to type i mean just tell a little white lie you know and she's like you really don't, you really don't feel comfortable doing that i'm like I really don't, I lied enough when I was 11 years old, I don't really feel the need to lie again. And if you tell the truth, people don't believe you half the time anyway. So you're good.
0: (laughs) That's so true. Yeah, I mean, I, I know exactly how you feel. It felt like for the first, cause that was the first time that I had ever told anybody about it was when I told my mom. And it's such a massive weight off of your shoulders. And I told her, she couldn't tell my dad. I told her not to tell my dad because I thought that my dad would try to fight the guy. And I thought that my dad would lose so I was trying to protect him. And you prob- you thought that your dad was going to win, but not only win, but kill the guy. Uh, do, ex- do exactly
1: what he did. Yeah, do yeah. exactly what he did. Right. and so I didn't realize he was going to do it in such spectacular fashion where people would be, you know, talking about it on Twitter 37 years later. But if you go to Twitter right now <laughs> and you type in my dad's name, someone within the last day or two has mentioned my father. Right. Whenever, before Jeff kidnapped me, if I would have told on him i felt my father would kill him once jeff was in custody i didn't think my father would kill him i felt he would just let him go to jail for the rest of his life and be happy with that but yeah. no my dad was from a different cloth
0: <laughs> where are you when you found out that jeff had been killed
1: we were at my grandparents house we were sitting on the front steps and my mother came with my uncle like i said earlier in the police state in a police car so i knew something bad had happened i didn't know what but of, of course eventually i i was told not to watch they were like oh whatever you do don't watch the news and uh there's this old richard Pryor uh skit where he was talking about his daddy would be like boy don't you kiss no pussy don't you ever kiss no pussy richard Pryor was like i couldn't wait to kiss a pussy but that's kind of how it was i couldn't wait to watch the news like they're telling me not to do it i'm going to fucking do it and so i watched the news I, i looked at the papers and it was all over and uh you know, it was, it was somewhat comforting to see how it actually happened. Um, but I probably watched the news footage over and over and over when I, when it first happened, every time it would come on the news, I'd watch it. And, uh, you know, it was just weird because it was just my way at 11 years old, 12 years old at this time now of processing it, dealing with coping with it, you know, and, and um, I think I did a good job getting through it, but you know, it definitely was something that it, I, I had to it, wasn't, it didn't happen overnight. It's definitely like a grieving process. So I had to kind of go through this whole mourning period, not just a Jeff about what had all happened and everything else. And so uh, eventually, you know, I got back to normal. I started playing sports again. Jeff made me quit uh, my sports. So I got back into baseball that summer. I started playing football in middle school in seventh grade, got back to playing basketball. And, you know, it just is almost like that slice my life was removed and it just went back to how it was before. Like we had never met Jeff before in our life. Definitely. Yeah. So other, other than the fact that my dad was cutting the grass at the church, cause that's what he did his probation for. <laughs> I mean, his community service for <laughs> other, than, other than that, we were good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. What was reintegrating uh, to society like when you went back to school, presumably, and were joining these sports? What was that experience like for
1: you? All right. I tell this story in a book because it's, I mean, not because it's true. I mean, it is true, but it's kind of funny. So I walked first day back to class. Okay. First day back to class. And you can, you can Google this shit. All right. So I walk, I walk in the gym. So the buses would drop us off at the gym and we'd wait for the classes for homeroom in the gym so we're waiting for the bell to ring well i walk over and i see my friend brian they're sitting on the stage all the way across the gym and when i walked to that gym my hair remembers golden gold yeah And so like people just whoop. and literally the whole school watched me walk across the basketball court to my friend brian and a couple of the girls that were friends of ours like crystal and uh Kalees and rachel and so i'm sitting there and they're looking at me and they're just like and i'm like what Y'all look at me like I've been kidnapped or something. And then they started laughing because they're like, okay, well, Jody's the same. So then yeah. homeroom bell rings. I walk into the room. There's a big banner. Welcome home, Jody. And then on the bulletin board, there's a picture of me, my class picture with a signature, like someone had torn off a piece of paper that i had signed with so my, my picture in a signature. And next to that was a newspaper article that said boy in plastic bubble dies. And so I looked at him I was like, Y'all didn't give me much of a chance, did y'all? <laughs> and so that that kind of made them realize that, hey, I'm still the same person that they knew. Um, but so if you look up when the boy in a plastic bubble dies, because uh, John Travolta played him in a made-for-TV movie back in the 70s, um, so they, that – person that john travolta played back in the 70s he died in real life and that was on the bulletin board next to my picture
0: (laughs) wow that is hilarious yeah it's it's funny how humor can be used in that way to sort of like disarm people and make them just know like hey i'm laughing at this so you don't need to be as grim and like sad for me you know like it's it's okay i'm here i'm alive you know we survive
1: well when i was talking to mike burnett today at lunch he uh he goes, yeah, we were talking, there's a group of people, goes, yeah, Jody told me the other day that, uh, you know, he's in such a dry spell that he was getting more sex at 11 than he is now. <laughs> I said, yeah, Mike, I said, I've been single so long. I said, I think my favorite sexual position is showering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what, what? did it affect your sexuality at all? Um, no, I mean, because I felt I was straight before and i feel i straight now. Um, yeah. I can tell you the one thing, and I don't know if people are interested in this because I, I don't know what the entry level is, but I have no interest in having anal sex with a female. I mean, why would I want to do that when I have a perfectly normal other part that it's meant for, you know? Sure. So that, that's the only thing. I've, I've had people, though, who were molested by, like, their cousin. A friend of mine, she was molested by her cousin. And the cousin would make her perform oral sex. Well, same thing with her. Whenever she was in the bed with her husband, she didn't, like, performing oral sex because it brought back those bad memories and the husband didn't understand I guess maybe she didn't tell the husband what had happened and so I could see where if I was doing let's say I was gay and I was with another man where maybe if he was maybe I would be a top and not a bottom because of what had happened when I was younger you know what I'm saying so I mean I'm sure it had that potential but no I I don't feel like it ever you know affected my sexuality I mean I tell people all the time and it's in the book you know I sucked a dick once I didn't like it so I know I'm fucking straight (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah it's easy to get your questions answered pretty uh pretty straight <laughs> away right there yeah <laughs> um, so what about it's one thing that i get from a lot of people when i talk about this stuff is like you should you know you should have killed the guy you you should have hurt him you should have done something to seek vengeance on him and um you know, I'm definitely at a stage now where I don't feel like I'm hanging on to any of these emotions that I had in the past, any sort of anger or uh, fear of this guy. Um, so from your perspective, from somebody who got vengeance, what did that feel like? So many people say that, but it's just sort of a reaction to it. But like, what is your perspective on that, um, on, on seeking vengeance on your abuser?
1: Um, well, I would not advise it. Okay. Because the first thing a parent needs to be there is for their son or their daughter, their child, okay? My dad put himself in a position where he was going to be prosecuted and could have went to jail for 25 years to life, okay? So I would not advise any parent to do that. My advice is be there for your child. Um, and honestly, I think, even though it makes a lot of people happy seeing daddy shoot Jeff, I think I would have been more satisfied knowing Jeff was in jail for the rest of his life, to be honest with you. hmm but there's no guarantee that was going to happen. You know what I'm saying? So the same yeah. justice system that my dad didn't trust and felt he had to take the law into his own hands is the same justice system. that were like, good job, Gary. Have some probation.
0: <laughs> yeah. I understand and, and totally – I get why people feel that way, why they're like, oh, this guy just shouldn't be allowed to, to walk around anymore. But I don't – I was the same way. I didn't, I didn't want him to die, uh, my, my abuser. Just I didn't feel that way towards him. Obviously, it's different for, for parents and, and other people that just kind of hear about these things. But no, the t- kid came forward after the trial happened. There were articles written about the case and somebody reached out to the prosecutor who had said that the guy who had molested me had molested him 20 years ago obviously would have been helpful before the case, but he right. didn't know. Um, so no other kids came forward that were friends of mine, uh, even though all of my friends had to testify because we all were sleeping in the same bed at, at this guy's house. Um, but yeah, so he had, he had clearly been doing this. I'm sure there were many more kids in between that 20-year time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, nobody nobody else ever did uh, come forward. But you said something there that I think is super valuable, which is like, as a parent, when you find something out like this, that your kid was molested, you have an opportunity. Opportunity There to make a massive impact on them positively in the way that you react to the situation. And I think when you're channeling all of this energy into just being mad at the person who did it, and wanting vengeance, I think that you're missing an opportunity to just be allowing your kid to heal by being there for them. And and one thing that you talked a lot about is your mom remaining calm in the situation. And right, could you elaborate on that and how that kind of made you feel?
1: Well, one of the things that Mike Barnett told my mother is like, June, you need to remain calm because if you upset him, he might not talk. And so she was instructed by Mike Barnett to remain calm. Mm-hmm. And so I was surprised at how calm she was. And that comfort, that calmness is what gave me comfort to be able to feel comfortable to disclose. And so a lot of times, and, and Mike even said this in the CNN uh, or interview, he said, a lot of times the parents' overreaction is more damaging to the child than the actual act itself. Hmm. And i mentioned a case in the book, someone I know very close to, um, she was sexually assaulted when she was 14 and her mother absolutely handled it the wrong way. She wouldn't listen to my advice. And I got to the point where I said, I'm not going to tell you anything because you don't listen to me. I told her, I said, get off social media, get, you know, cancel Twitter, Instagram. Oh, she's got over a thousand pictures on Instagram. I I don't give a fuck yeah i'm like get off of all social media and then she she quit listening so i just quit giving advice sure so but but i'm happy to report that the young girl is now 22 and she's doing very well (laughs) it's good to hear yeah yeah and uh, and i think that you know it's one of the problems
0: with social media is that like because we have the ability to broadcast this stuff to everybody that we know most people do do that all of the time and probably i mean i obviously social media wasn't really around when this happened to me so i was fortunate to to not have this spread in that regard but i can imagine if people were talking about this on social media while you're going through it how much more that could compound the entire experience Um, could you imagine
1: if that happened today oh my my god God. Or, or or today like with the setting of with the technology we have now was in in 1984 oh lord it would be insane,
0: I know, and that stuff is just going on now um, yeah it's it's really it's really crazy to think about um, another thing I wanted to ask you is like you had mentioned in um, in one of the podcasts that you did that uh, your uncle had seen Jeff kiss you uh, just like on the lips before any of the kidnapping had happened right yep. so did you tell your parents about that or when yeah. did that sort of come to light
1: this was uh, we did a uh... We had a karate tournament in Fort Worth and my uncle lived in Dallas. And so we were going to stay with my cousins for a couple of days. So Jeff had to drop us off and we met on the interstate, you know, just the side of the road. We got out. And I guess whenever I got out of the van or whatever, Jeff gave me a kiss on the mouth and my uncle saw it. My uncle went to my dad and said, "That, that ain't right. He's like, a grown man shouldn't be kissing the kid on the mouth. And my dad defended Jeff because my dad at the time was still friends, friendly with him. And my dad was like, no, Jeff's a good guy. You know, you're overreacting. You just don't like him. Cause he, I think he, uh, he had hit my cousin on the back of the head that night. Cause my cousin was visiting. Uh, he's like, you know, get, you know, get over there or whatever. He just, he would do that to us. And he did it to my cousin. So my cousin got mad. And so there was this big, you know, stink about that. So my dad just kind of disregarded it was like, Oh, you're just mad about, you know, him popping your, you know, my cousin on the head at night. And uh, so my dad defended Jeff at the time because they, I mean, they were all blinded by that grooming that he had done.
0: Right. And, you know, it's interesting that the, the rationale and justifications that uh, parents and people that are involved have some sort of a trust in the, the abuser will come up with and sort of try to uh, rationalize. Like, (laughs) so your dad was basically saying that your uncle, because Jeff hit his kid, on the head your uncle then said that he kissed you your dad's kid on the mouth
1: i i guess it was something like that <laughs> something yeah, like that, that right yeah so my dad's yeah. like no oh, no jeff you know he didn't mean nothing with you know hitting your kid on the head i mean that's just kind of just how jeff is I mean, then they kind of justified his behavior because that's what they were used to
0: right it's easy from like an outside perspective to be like oh this person just kissed a kid on a ma- on the mouth like what is going on here right but when people are invested emotionally and are trusting this person it's harder to get them to come to terms with it and that's why like a lot of the people that i've talked to on this podcast were molested by family members and that sort of introduces this other dynamic that's like okay well if this if if i'm telling the truth that my family member molested me then the whole family dynamic is shifting and you have to reevaluate relationships that you had presumably for your whole life with these people that you trusted. And so I think that's part of why somebody like Jeff and the guy who molested me try to get integrated with the family because they're more likely to just brush this stuff off and, and let it go because they trust you. And you also brought up uh, that Jeff had asked you to potentially be like a child prostitute for money in L.A.
1: Yeah, he asked what I thought it would have, I'd be interested in doing. I said, absolutely no. And it, it, he, he just kind of floated it out there. I shot it down. He never, he never revisited it again, but I mean, he did throw it out there. I mean, who knew Jeff would be like the, uh, uh, the pioneer in uh, human trafficking, or at least you yeah. know, come up with it. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was he mad at you at all for saying no to that? No, I don't think so. I don't think he was mad at that. He, I think cause his mother had done that to him and his sister. His mother had, so- had had them be prostitutes. Yes whoa and so um i think when i said no he realized that okay i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go there
0: it's interesting that he's willing to molest you but won't make you do what happened to him
1: well and again this is a whole different time it it would have been more difficult than going on the internet and looking for someone who wants to have sex with an 11 year old boy right Uh, back in 1984 um so i being in california i think he had the connections he didn't know you know what i'm saying like so um he was just like i had a stupid idea i came up with but uh yeah he he did bring it up though
0: yeah and there were never like deals being made were there like it wasn't like the type of thing where he was like we're gonna go to disneyland and then you're gonna we're gonna have sex later was it was there any sort of like exchanges made ever like that
1: i mean just other than you know spending time with him we did our karate training then we would go to the mall or we go to the movies or the arcade i mean they had an arcade underneath our karate studio for a while and uh i mean there was never any of that exchanges but i mean jeff was a lot of fun for a kid if he's if he wasn't you know screwing you you know i mean i would say if you were a kid and let's just hypothetically say that jeff wasn't a child molester and he did all the fun things that he was doing to try to molest children yeah um then he would have been awesome. But the only reason why he did what he did was so he could have molested children.
0: Yeah, Yeah, dude, this is exactly, the guy who molested me was like the coolest dude. Like we could do all this shit at his house and we couldn't do anywhere else. Like we could play, you know, M-rated video games and stay up as late as we wanted. And like, you know, he treated us like way older than we were you just wanted to be over there it's part of why we're we let it go on for so long it's because you also
1: don't want to lose those experiences i think in the book i quoted jim Clemente, he's a former fbi profiler and he was a writer for uh criminal minds and he said i think this the three d's the the three d's are drinking driving and dirty movies that's what the predators will use now driving was definitely one of them jeff didn't drink so that wasn't an option um or maybe drinking drugs and um and he really didn't do dirty movies either so um but that is something it, it was one of those three he did do the driving but um, you know that that is the thing i mean jeff let us stay up we didn't have we didn't have a bedtime when we were with jeff we could stay up as late as we want yeah. you know jeff would give me twenty dollars go here go go to the arcade go play i mean so yeah, yeah so i guess in a way it was a trade-off because at night you know here uh you know I had to do put it with what I had to put it with. Yeah. Um,
0: no I had the dirty movies that was that was our thing. We, he showed us like uh, all sorts of like softcore porn related things and we would watch that like on the computer in the living room of the house you know me and my friend and his dad would be like just sort of looking over at us and, and, and watching us watch this and I remember literally thinking to myself, like why can't my parents be this cool? you know it was just like an outrageous thought to think at that time but uh, or not at that time an outrageous thought to think now but like at the time it's like this guy this guy treats us. like... Like the adults that we are, and we don't have to be. You know, we're eight years old at the time, right? But it's that that freedom and sort of ability to uh, just operate at like a, a teenage level
1: or whatever it is that's that's so appealing. Meanwhile, meanwhile, he's looking at you like, "Oh, I'm a tug that pecker." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> can't, wait to get to, can't wait to get my hands on that little pecker.
0: Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. It's exactly what he was thinking. You're obviously at a point now, like where you're. You, clearly healed from this and when did you feel free from this experience when did you start feeling um okay talking about it and uh was that kind of a you know what was that a gradual process or
1: actually what really was something i had to to kind of come to grips with it pretty quickly because remember um i was keeping this a secret for a year then they find out with the hospital report I'm still keeping it a secret. Nobody still knows except for my mom. And then daddy went and had to go make a spectacle of himself. And then everybody knew. So uh, March 16th at at 10 o'clock when the news happened, pretty much everyone knew what had happened to me. And then as I remember being in eighth grade, try this one uh, for a teenager kid. uh, Being in eighth grade, we'd be riding to school. We had a radio on the bus. And they'd be like, dude in the news today, Gary Plochet has a hearing <laughs> set for today, uh, for <laughs> shooting the man who had molested his son, the one sitting in the back seat back there. Oh, you know, it was like No way. Oh, shit. You know. Are you so I, I kinda I, I kinda had to deal with it pretty quickly it back like I said, back then it was none of this. We're not gonna name the victim and you know, it was, you know, my dad's my dad's lawyer at the time went on the fucking news and had the advocate the gay magazine and said that Jeff had given me a copy of the gay magazine the advocate um for me to keep set for I'm like Jeff never gave me I'm not trying to defend Jeff but Jeff never gave me uh the advocate now here's what Jeff did with the advocate okay as a joke when we would get someone who was new to the karate team and let's say we went to Walden Books or we go to the bookstore okay there was a section of magazines and we would go and we'd look through magazines. Jeff would look through the Rob Report. You know, some people were looking at Mad Magazine. And eventually the new person would, all, we'd always hand them the advocate. And so that, they're trying to, oh, what is this? What? And then they come over to some big guy's balls hanging out. And you we're know. like, we, we all would laugh at him. Ah, we got you. We got you. That's the only thing the advocate played into the Jeff's relationship is we would play jokes on people. And I think we even did that after Jeff was gone because, the, you know, when you're 13, that shit's funny yeah you, know, of ah, course. You're gay. you saw the man's balls yeah. you know but that you know so no jeff didn't do that but uh anyway there was no hiding it i mean everybody knew
0: right what's your relationship with your dad like now
1: well he died in uh 2014 mm-hmm. but you know leading up to 20 well in 05 i was living in pennsylvania in april of 05 he had a stroke it was pretty bad and uh so, I made a, I came down for two weeks. I had vacation and I used that up and I brought him to rehab and physical therapy. And so I decided then he was living by himself. My mother was living in Biloxi. I was like, okay, well, I'll move back home. I put in seven years at Pennsylvania. I was like, I'll move back home. I'll figure out what I'll do next. I mean, the goal all along was to finish the book and speak. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, I lived with him until he went to the nursing home. He had another stroke in 2011. And he needed full-time care, so we put him in a nursing home. And, um, yeah, you know, we'd go get him every Sunday. We'd bring him home. We'd spend a day at the house. A um, couple times during the week, we might go get him, or my sister would go pick him up and take him out for margaritas or daiquiris or, you know. So, I mean, he was still – I, I, I say it like this. If he was your pet, he would have been to the point to where you still wouldn't have taken him to get put down. But if anything gets worse, you would take him to get put down. Yeah. And so – and then one night, my mom and sister, they spent the day with him. This was a Sunday. They'd spent all day Sunday with him. And, uh, that next night he died. He was just wow. watching TV, just sitting there looking at the TV with his eyes open. I didn't, I didn't go up to the hospital. I mean, uh, the nursing home after he died, my brother lives across the street. So I called him. I don't know why he still would have been dead, you know, in the morning, but you know, we, we get, came over had a couple of beers and just kind of sat around and I, I went to work the next day. I was mm-hmm. like, well, I'm not helping with the funeral planning. so not, I'm, you know, I, I went to work. Uh, but no, we, yeah. we had a good relationship. I mean, even when me and my brother, and this is a funny thing. It's like parents. I was telling a guy this, uh, yesterday, me and my brother were playing in this like old man baseball league. Okay. But it's 2011. And even in 2011, we're both old. Well, I was fat and out of shape. My brother was in pretty good shape. And, uh, you know, the proud parents still wanted to see his kids play. So he would still come to our games. And I remember my best friend, Dave, he played on the old man baseball league and he played with Roger Staubach's son. And I went to go see Dave play one time and sitting next to me watching his kid play was Roger Staubach. So I thought that was kind of cool that, you know, Mm -hmm. here he is That's still his son. And even though he's a hall of fame football player, that's still his son playing old man baseball and he's still a dad and he wants to see his kid play. So I thought that was kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, it is.
1: But yeah, we had a, we had a pretty good relationship.
0: And when he killed Jeff, what was your guys' first conversation like after that happened?
1: You remember that at all? We we didn't we didn't really have a conversation. We really didn't talk about it. And it wasn't until late that summer we were walking down to the neighborhood pool, and that's when I told him that I don't blame him for what he did. And that's like the first time where he kind of felt comfortable knowing that okay, I didn't hate him because I was mad at Daddy at first for doing what he did. But then that's when I was like, Daddy, I understand why you did it. I'm not mad at you. So I think that meant a lot.
0: Uh- can imagine that meant a ton. I, it would be super hard for him, I'm sure, to hear that you were mad at him for doing that. When, when, yeah, I, I just wonder because you know when people react that way, it's, it's interesting because it, it feels like it's more about him wanting to take vengeance on the guy. It, it, it almost seems less to do with you.
1: Well, uh, also think about this. Okay, you've been separated from your wife for seven, eight months. Um, it appears some other man has kind of taken over the, the head of the household. Mm. Um, then the man takes your 11 year old son for 10 days. You don't know where your kid is. Then when the man is caught, you find out he's been fucking your kid for the last year. (laughs) I mean, my dad literally one day, Jeff had spent the night on a Saturday night and we were going to go to my grandparents' house. Uh, We went every Sunday to eat and we took Jeff and dropped him off at the karate school. And we turned around and as we left, we get to the light and my dad's crying. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, he's just pitiful. He don't have anybody. So my dad turned around. Hey Jeff, get in the car. Come on. Took him to the house, let him shower, gave him some clean clothes, literally gave him the shirt off his back, brought Jeff to my grandparents' house so he could have family around him because he didn't have anybody. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when you find out that that you did this, you trusted this man that you brought him to your parents' home and you find out that he's fucking your kid my dad wasn't in the right state of mind i mean look at him he shot a man in front of a television camera most sane people don't do that so (laughs) i mean part part of it is that you know you don't fuck with my family and part of it was he was nuts i mean you can to me it's painful to to hear um, because when you if you watch the video if you go to my website there's the unedited version plug your earphones in and listen carefully you can hear my dad crying in the background and one mm. of the cops finally looks at my dad's like, why in the fuck would you do that? My dad looks up at him and he says, if he'd have done that to your family, you would have done the same thing, too. You don't know. And you can mm. see my dad look up and his hands are behind his back. But he looks up and you, you can hear him say it. And he's been misquoted as saying if he'd have done that to your kid or your child. But my dad says, if he'd have done that to your family, because it didn't just affect me, it affected everybody.
0: Wow. Yeah, that totally makes sense. What would you say are the best things that we can do? to prevent molestation from happening in the future.
1: The best thing to do to prevent, well, I wouldn't let my kids around anybody. Um, That would be one. Uh, (laughs) Again, paying attention to who your children are are with be very uh, active in, you know, what your children are doing. You know, it's, it's, it's tough to say like, I mean, there, there could definitely be a one-off. I mean uh, you know, you never know. We, we had a dentist that lived behind our house. And like he bit my cousin on her ass when she was young. And now they came and they told, and he was never allowed around us again, you know, that kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. you know, you can almost, you almost can't prevent that. I hate to use the word prevention. You can use risk reduction techniques. I mean, you can do everything right. And your kids still get molested. So, um, but the thing is, is you want to talk with your children at a young age um, about their bodies. You want to be able to have them identify that you can Google it. You can Google, there's no place like home and it talks about age appropriate discussions and how to have the discussions with your children. So starting at a young age, I would just make that dialogue just open and the communication open that way. They do feel very comfortable. If anyone ever did touch them inappropriately and you you set clear boundaries with your children. Um, but mainly communication, uh, Teaching them don't by not teaching them, it's not going to help them. Parents don't feel comfortable talking about it, you know, but that's part of being a responsible parent. I think there's a lot of good information in my book as far as what parents can do to kind of reduce the risk of their child uh, being the victim of sexual abuse, or at least the victim of long-term sexual abuse by someone. Because once they invest in a kid, you know, they're going to be with that kid for a couple of years if they can. But you've got to talk to your kids when when they're young. You you have to do it. It's nothing's going to help them by not talking to them about it.
0: Totally. And I feel like p- parents want to preserve the innocence of the kid, you know, by like yeah. trying to delay these sexual talks for as long as possible. But like the risk is just so outweighs what you're preserving or whatever. You know, it's that's like, why I hate Santa Claus.
1: <laughs> Why's that? Because parents think it's so cute. Oh, my kid believes in Santa. And, you know, if the first time a kid said, hey, you know what? That Santa Claus had blue eyes last year. This one has brown. You need to come clean. Right. Okay, right. just as you think it's cute to keep your dopey kid believing some magic man that doesn't right. fucking exist. Okay, right. let's let's fuck that shit. Talk to right. your kids about why they shouldn't be sitting on Santa's lap.
0: Right. And you know, <laughs> they're going to find out about these things soon enough anyway. And you can have the conversations in a way that doesn't like cause them to distrust humanity, you know, like you're not going to ruin their upbringing by telling them that hey, this could potentially happen or just that if anything does happen to you, if anybody touches you in any way, because, you know, regardless of how it makes you feel,
1: like you need to tell us, like immediately. I also, I don't like putting the, the responsibility of not being sexually abused on the eight year olds. So that's why I tell parents don't let your kids go to anybody, you know, or be around them, be mm-hmm. with them. You don't, need, you don't need to, oh, I know it seems so nice. Oh, they're going to spend a night at so and so's house and you get a night off and daddy's like, oh, I'm going to get some tonight, but that ain't worth it.
0: Yeah, and your kids will still have totally great relationships with kids without having to spend the night at their place, you know, like right. you, it's not gonna <laughs> ruin their friendships or anything. Although at the time, I mean, I remember thinking that if I didn't sleep over at my friend's house, it was it was like a life or death thing at the time as a kid. But it's just one of those things that you have to like lay, drop, you know, lay down the lots, you're, you're a parent and you know what you're potentially preventing. And, and if we can normalize the conversations and show people just in the way that we've had this conversation, like you don't have to be, it doesn't have to make you cringe. It doesn't have to make you feel bad for talking about it. These are things that need to be discussed. And until we're willing to get through the discomfort of discussing them, it's going to be hard to make any significant impact on this epidemic that we're facing in around the world today. And, um, you also had a term that I hadn't heard before called compliant victimization. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about that a little
1: bit? All right. That's definitely something that I read about that when, uh, Jim Clemente did the, uh, Paterno report. He did the Clemente report. It was called the Clemente report. And it was basically, he looked into, um, the whole Jerry Sandusky, Penn State scandal with, with Joe Paterno. The Paterno family hired Jim Clemente to kind of investigate that. And he talks about the compliant victim. Okay. It is kind of like, uh, that trade off that you're talking about. The kid gets attention. The kid gets to travel. The kids gets fun things, ice cream, money, movies, stays up late, dirty pictures, draws, she gets to drink, you know, uh, and it's almost a, a trade off that you're willing to, you know, put up with it and you're, you're a compliant victim. Okay. You're not, you're not asking for it. Like I never once said, Hey Jeff, man, look, can you blow me? Yeah. Um, but you, you deal with what you have to one, cause I didn't want to upset my parents. And two, you know, I didn't want Jeff molesting me, but I didn't want Jeff hurt, and I felt that that was going to happen. So, the, yeah, that's where you get these compliant victims. Think about batter women who go back to their their boy their husbands mm-hmm. or boyfriends. You know, I mean, that's kind of that compliant victim as well.
0: Yeah, and it and it also is similar to what you said earlier about you know wanting jeff to not be mad at you you just didn't want to get molested anymore but you didn't necessarily want any harm to come to him
1: right if jeff would have said hey look i'm gonna quit screwing you and i'm not gonna screw any more kids i'd have been like great and i just would have continued to hang out with him
0: you know <laughs> yeah let's go back to disneyland yeah. <laughs> yeah let's
1: go back let's go to fun fair park is what we had in Baton Rouge, but we never went to fun fair park with jeff but uh you know we'd run the malls i mean he'd let us you know, he'd let us do shit our parents wouldn't let us do so for a kid that was great
0: did you know anybody else while you were growing up that was going through something like this that wasn't didn't have to do with Jeff? Like, did anybody come up to you in
1: school once all of this stuff came out? Okay, years later. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I remember being in sixth grade sitting in class, okay, this is, I'm getting out of school that day, and I'm going to karate practice, and I know it's about to happen to me, and I remember the statistics for like one in four girls, and one in seven boys are sexually abused, I remember sitting in that class, looking around, going, okay, who are the other three?
0: <laughs> one, two.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I counted the number of girls, and yeah. I counted the number of boys, and I was like, all right, who, who are the other three? Yeah. And I had, I had one girl, I saw her in college, and it's funny, because we nicknamed her Sheena because her name... Or, or she looked kind of like the the woman who just died uh, that played the Bond girl, uh, Tanya Roberts or whatever. Uh-huh. So we, we nicknamed her Sheena. Cause that's when that was popular. I think when I was in eighth grade and she came up to me and she said, I want to talk to you. And I said, "All right." so we walked outside. She started crying and I was like, what, what's wrong? And she was like, when we were in middle school, when you had gotten back from California, all the kids asked me to go ask you if you were molested. And I was like, okay, what would I say? She was like, you, you denied it or whatever. She's like, but I didn't know what that word meant. She goes, my stepfather was molesting me the whole time too. You know. Then there was another guy I ran into the. Uh, he was a problem kid, bad kid, and then always in trouble. And I saw him at the the gas station, and he said, Hey, Joe, man. He goes, I saw I saw you on Oprah, man. He goes, I think that's a, that's that's pretty cool what you do. You know, I I understand. And he didn't tell me he was sexually abused, but he yeah. told me he was sexually abused. So I mean, um, and you know, I've had a, a, my, my poor little brother. He gets it the most because most people don't feel comfortable telling me, so they'll just spill it all on him. I'm like, good, you you, hand, <laughs> you deal with it.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, a couple of things there. One, uh, that girl not knowing what molestation meant. That it was the exact situation that I was in. I, were you?
1: Did you? Were you in the same spot? Knew, knew, no, no, like, I knew. I knew the moment man, Jeff put his hand on my deck. I was like, oh my god, he's one of those people my mother warned me about. Oh yeah because she had she had warned us that there are people out there who could do that
0: and it just shows that, you know, I guess that in some cases, that might be enough for, for kids to speak up. But in many cases, it's not. And we uh, we have to do more than that um, it, moving forward as a species. But it, it it's so funny, like, people ask me, like, why didn't you say something? I, I didn't even know what was going on. I mean, obviously, you had an understanding. And I, like, kind of knew that it was, like, not a good thing. But the word molestation didn't mean anything to me.
1: Right. It wasn't in your vocabulary.
0: And then also just, like, the power of vulnerability. I mean, obviously, like, all this stuff sort of, it was so publicized for you. Um, but just because it was publicized, I mean, you probably helped so many people that may have never been able to speak up about it otherwise come forward.
1: Well, that's what kind of led me to uh, the path I chose. Um, in 1991, we got a call from a producers from the Geraldo Rivera talk show um, that wanted my dad and me to go up to New York City because um, there was a father. I think the father killed the guy who murdered his son. And so the father was going up for sentencing. And so they wanted to bring my dad and show support for this man. So hopefully he wouldn't get life in jail or whatever. Yeah. And so we went on to Geraldo and like, my only goal was to go to New York city. I wanted to go to the city, see New York. I want to be on TV. Now I was looking forward to being on TV and I was excited to meet Geraldo. And we got there on a show and that show we filmed it in April and it didn't air till June. And a couple weeks after it aired, I got a call from Mike Barnett, and he called me upset. I want want you to hear this from me. He he goes, we arrested a guy uh, earlier today. It was a pastor who had been sexually abusing these two boys, and the one kid saw you on the Geraldo show, and after seeing you on the show, told, and we were able to arrest this guy, and they eventually convicted him, and then he got out, and then he got arrested again for molestation kids because they they don't stop. But uh, it was kind of then when I was like, okay, I just went to be on TV. I just went to go see New York City, but I was able to – share my story and help these two kids from being molested right here in Baton Rouge. I was like, what difference can I make? And so I tried to take what happened and take the negative experience and turn it into a positive experience to help other people so that they don't get sexually abused or at least have the, the the strength to come forward once they hear me or see me.
0: I think that's amazing, man. And I, I felt that very much so as as a victim. And it's just so helpful to see somebody speaking about it without shame or guilt or, or anything like that. And it is just uh, yeah, man, it's just really encouraging. <laughs> so I appreciate everything that you've done. What were those experiences like on on the talk shows? I mean, how did it feel to be so obviously you it, you were sort of thrown into the public light, but but consciously, you know, deciding to go do that?
1: All right. Well, there's a couple of funny stories related to my talk shows. Um, one was I was going on the Montel Williams show, and because Montel Williams was a talk show, it wasn't a news show. Channel Two didn't want to release the footage of the shooting, so what they did was they had me go to the airport like an hour early so I can get with one of their camera guys so that he could have me talk about what had happened. So I'm re- recreating in the airport where the shooting took place. The payphones. I'm standing next to payphones. Well, the camera guy goes. He goes. He goes, hang tight. I got to change tapes. I said, okay. So he kneels down. He's changing tapes. All right, and i'm standing over with payphone i don't know if they were still there or whether they would taken them out but i was standing where my dad was when he shot him and the guy had that camera on the ground and a guy came up the escalators took two steps looked at me shot me with an imaginary gun and said be careful you know what happened the last time they had a camera up here what <laughs> but he didn't know who i was or what we were doing up there but he just looked at me he's ah be careful you don't know, have the last time my camera was up here oh and my then- God. he didn't but they didn't know that it was you no. And then uh, <laughs> me and my dad flew out to LA to be on the, the uh, Lisa Gibbons show and she had a talk show back in 95. Uh, and um, back then I had to mail in pictures of me when I was like 10 years old so that they could show it on the screen as I'm talking you know, Jody. Here he is at 10. And so we're sitting in the green room and we're waiting and Lisa comes walking in and she's trying to be cute. You know, she's like, Hey Jody. Oh, she goes, I saw those pictures of you when you were 10 years old. You were so cute. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, I was too cute. That's why I'm here. (laughs) And look, she turned red and daddy started laughing. Yeah. She was like, Oh my God. I can't believe you just said that. (laughs) See, I was too cute. here. Back home, about two weeks later, I'm at LSU, and I hear that Prim, her name is Prim Burns was speaking to the law students at LSU. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, the law, like the law club or whatever. I was like, all right let me go see her. So. I walk in the room, I sit down, and she gives a little presentation. So after, hey, how's it going? Oh, not too much. I saw, I heard you were on campus. I wanted to come say hey. She's like, oh, I'm glad you did. And so the girl who had gotten Prim to come speak, she goes, how do y'all know each other? And I looked at the girl, and I said, oh, she prosecuted my father. And she goes, ha, ha, ha. So really, how do y'all know each other? And Prim goes, no, oh, really, I prosecuted his father. So that girl was like, What?
0: yeah people have a hard time deciphering if you're like just making a joke or if like this really happened you know
1: i got a friend of mine i've known him for 15 years and he he'll tell people it took him 10 years to get used to the shit i say because you know like (laughs) like the or you gay no no i'm not gay i didn't suck a dick i didn't like it um you know and and i always you know will somehow throw something out there that makes usually everybody else feel uncomfortable and even in the book people if, if you read the last comment on amazon that someone posted they said that i've met you in person and you really are like this in person your hum- humor comes through i'm writing a book about uh child rape kidnap and murder and i'm trying to make it funny so
0: i love it man. <laughs> and then because oprah was molested too uh, yes. I, right when yes. you guys were talking was that sort of a back and forth between between your guys's experience or what was that like
1: not really we were talking about ellie nestler she had a, a situation where she shot the uh the guy who molested her, her, her son. And then they had another guy. They had his daughter who was molested by that guy's best friend. And that guy ended up killing his best friend because he molested his daughter. So they they just kind of putting those stories together, like how far would you go to protect your child? Um, The Oprah show really at the time rubbed me the wrong wrong way because I had done Geraldo a couple times. I'd done Maury a couple times. I'd just done Lisa a couple times. And every host before the show would come in introduce themselves thank you for coming you know we're gonna go out there try to make a difference we're trying to do some good it, whatever it was they would meet with us oprah didn't oprah walked by the green room and waved okay so that one rubbed me the wrong way another thing that rubbed me the wrong way is every talk show i had been on let's say they filmed for 44 minutes okay they yeah. usually filmed for 44 minutes every now and then a uh, uh, a guest might go over and they might have to cut like the last sentence he said just to make it fit in that time frame. Mm -hmm. Oprah filmed for like two hours and then edited her show. So I felt that that was kind of like an unfair advantage because, you know, you're able to interview more people and then you put together an hour program. Half the shit I said on Oprah, they took out. Sure. And I didn't like that.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I think it's definitely important to be including all of everything that's said. And, and and I feel like there's people have a tendency to not want to include the details, right? Like the the, the graphic details about these experiences. And I'm on, for, uh, of the point of view that like we need to talk about this stuff in its most extreme form. Uh well,
1: m- my mother wanted me to include more details. And I was like, you know what? I don't need to include more details. Like I don't need to include the fact that I used to have to take toilet paper and fold it up like a Kotex and put it in my underwear. Cause every time I would pass gas, um, DNA would slip out. I don't need to put that in there. I don't need to go into <laughs> yeah. all, all these details. And I told my mother, I said, look, I got a, I got a fine line between making a victim traumatized where they put the book down and don't read it. And being too graphic and a pedophile jerking off to it like it's penthouse forum. So I didn't right. want either of those two things to happen. So I had to That's create that point. balance.
0: So that's a very good point. I think more more I'm, what I mean is just in terms of like making sure that people who have been through the most extreme stuff don't think that they're the only ones who have been through the most extreme stuff um, and making sure people understand that there's a spectrum of these things and that, you know, it's, it's uh, important to include all of the experiences. But yeah, it's like super, it's super difficult to talk about the most extreme parts uh, without having a whole bunch of people be like, well, this is too much for me. So, um, yeah, and and, and I I think it's great that you were able to find that balance between the two and, and also be incorporating humor the whole way. You're clearly somebody that has, you were able to just sort of move on with your life pretty quickly. And I feel like so many people don't have that experience and, and are weighed down by their what happened to them for a long time and sometimes forever. And um, I wanted to ask you, like, what advice would you give to somebody who has been through something similar uh, or really resonated with your story with regards to healing from your experience and moving on and, and having a, a normal life? Um, what would you say to somebody like that?
1: All right. So one of my biggest pet peeves, and if you watch... Uh, the ESPN e60 I say it then I'll say it now is I hate when people say oh what this man did and and you can go go to my website and look at ABC News story and fucking Ted Cruz is on there and he's saying his shit if I want to punch him in his fucking face um you know oh you've done irreparable harm to these children these children's lives are going to be damaged forever no I'm not fucking damaged goods you asshole okay yeah well did I have a screwed up year yeah absolutely but That kid, just because they were, you know, learned about sex or sexualized or molested, they're not scored for life. They're not damaged good. Now, if you tell them they're scored for life, they're going to be scored for life. Um, So my thing is, just because you've gone through something like this doesn't mean that you can't heal and doesn't mean that you can't uh, recover. So don't, if you think of yourself as being scored for life, then you're going to be. If -hmm. you think, okay, you know, this was bad. I can work through it. Um, I'll use this to wait, to be a better parent, not allow my children around, uh, people who, or, you know, even family members, I, I won't let them spend the night. You know, I mean, if you if you take what happened to you and, and use it to make yourself better, then you can be OK. And
0: it's such an important message to send to people because it it feels like what we are sending, uh, society is sending. So oftentimes right now is just like, oh, my God, like this is
1: you unrecoverable from oh, like the experience of innocence. Or, yeah. Yeah, they stole his <laughs> right. innocence. Right, right, right. I, I wasn't, I not that innocent when Jeff started that shit. I was, you know, a normal <laughs> ten year old.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and just you know, showing people that like this, that these don't have these events don't have to define you. Your future is entirely your own. You can make whatever you want of it. And and recognizing that the victim mentality is that's you have the ability to perceive these events however you want and transforming them into something positive that you're w- able to help other people recover from their own trauma as a result it's it's really inspiring to see and i couldn't agree more with with what she said there
1: and i think at the very beginning of my book i mentioned uh lady gaga sugar mary leonard and robin quivers okay these are three people who were all sexually abused when they were younger but they've all achieved greatness okay so they didn't allow that to define them either Mm
0: mm-hmm Yes. Yeah. There are so many examples of people like that and, and yourself included, you know, it's a very small part of your life. albeit traumatizing. It doesn't have to define the rest of your life. And um, I really just love your story and, and the way that you present it and how you live your life now. And it's really amazing to see. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on here and taking the time to do this, Jody. It was a pleasure oh, talking to you. Hey,
1: thank you for reaching out. I appreciate it.
0: Of course, man. And, uh, you can find why Gary, why available? Uh,
1: Amazon.com. It's not, it's not in full distribution. I'm okay. hope hopefully in the future I'll be able to republish it and get full distribution where it'll be in like Barnes and Nobles and it'll be in the airports and that kind of thing. But right now it's a, uh, I did an independent publisher. It's print on demand. You go to Amazon, you can get a Kindle version, um, which I love Kindles. Um, and you or you can get a paperback. Uh, it's 1999. I don't know if, but the taxes on Amazon, but uh, you know they'll print it up and they'll ship it and you'll get it in two days. And uh, there is really a lot of good information. And it's not a book like I said where you're gonna put down because it's too tough to read. I mean it is. I mean you can't get away from it. But I think there's enough valuable information that it's worth reading through and getting all the way through.
0: I think so, too. And um, it's so cool to see somebody present this stuff in the light that you're presenting it. And it's inspiring for all victims. And a lot of the people that listen to this podcast have been through similar things. So I have no doubt that you'll be helping all of
1: them. I hope to. I mean, my goal was to educate parents, inspire victims and survivors and entertain. I want it to be entertaining. I want it to be a good read. Um, The reporter last year when a book came out from my local paper of the advocate. He asked me, he said, why did you wait so long before publishing it? I said, well, I said, like my dad that night at the airport, I knew I only had one shot to get it right. <laughs> and I think I did. I think I got it right. I'm very proud of the book. It's better than what I'd hoped for. And I hope I was hoping for perfection. Now there are some typos, so it's not perfect in that sense, <laughs> but for the information, the content, it's, I think it's very, very valuable.
0: And there was one thing that you said at the beginning of uh, a podcast that you did on your website. The the host initially introduced this, you, uh, and the story that you were about to be telling as viewer discretion advised. And if kids are listening, you should really be turning it down. And you came in immediately and said that this is not something that kids need to be not hearing. It's exactly the type of stuff that they need
1: to hear. Exactly what they need to hear. Let them listen to it. And then this can open up the communication with you and your child. And y'all can have this dialogue. You know, you don't have to to harp on it all the time, but, you know, parents don't have a problem with telling their kids to look both ways. They don't have to tell them a problem. Stop, drop, and roll. You know, why should you have a problem with telling your kids um, no one should be allowed to touch you?
0: I totally agree. Jody, thank you so
1: much for being here. Thank you. Y'all have a good one.